you know Martin Luther very well at all, much about him rather, you know where I'm going to be reading from more than likely. We're just going to be Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Romans 1, 16 and 17 says this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Thank you for coming. You can be seated. This is the word of God. Please bow with me as we begin. Father, thank you for every soul that you've brought here this morning. I pray that you would please help us to be fed by your word and to be encouraged to walk in the truth and to stand on the truth, as Martin Luther did, sometimes having to stand alone. And I pray that you would please help us to also be resolute and have a strong resolve that comes from the power of your Holy Spirit. We, in and of ourselves, will fall without him, without you. So I pray, Lord, encourage us this morning as we learn about your faithful servant of old and help us to be faithful servants today and help us to draw our greatest example from your servant, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Welcome to Reformation Sunday. This year, we're studying the reformer Martin Luther. You may remember, though, last year, we studied John Huss. And as you might recall, the word Huss, his last name Huss, means a goose. He died in the year 1415, okay? 1415. You might might recall that he died because he was burned alive. His crime was that he believed that the word of God was true and that everything it said was true and that we should abide by it and not the traditions of the Catholic Church of the day. And so he stood against that. However, before he died, you might recall that he said, they will roast a goose now. Goose meaning hus. They will roast a goose now But after a hundred years, they will hear a swan sing, and him they will have to endure. A hundred years, he said, from now, they will hear a swan sing, and him they will have to endure. Well, it was October 31st, 1517, 102 years after that, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg church in Germany. So, I don't think we'll fault him too much for getting to, for being two years off. He's probably rounding. It was a prophecy, if you want to call it that, and it came true in Martin Luther. Let me begin by quoting Reformation stewards on their website. They said this about Martin Luther. He's one of the most influential men our world has known His words would thrust Europe into a movement that would reshape the West, redirect Christian history, and ripple a renewed light into the uttermost parts of the world. His greatest contribution has nothing to do with him and has everything to do with Christ. He was a mere instrument in the hands of the Almighty to recover an almost forgotten light, the gospel. His name was Martin Luther. That's again, that's from the Reformation Steward's website. Great introduction, I thought. 
He was born in the year 1460, 1483 in a small town called Eiselben, Germany. I might very likely mispronounce a lot of these towns. That's when you'll go to Brian Harrison, our German brother, and get the right pronunciation later. Born in 1483, small town Eiselben, Germany. He's named Martin for the simple fact that he was born on a Catholic holiday called St. Martin's Day. St. Martin was a patron saint from France in the 300s, and that's why they named him Martin. His father was a copper miner. He was determined to give his son a good education with the funds that they could receive from the copper mine. And he sent Martin to study law in Erfurt. Now, one of Martin's favorite things to do after class, he's a teenager at this point, was to go to the library there in Erfurt. And what he found was that they had a copy of the Bible in Latin. He'd never actually seen one in person ever his whole life up to that point as a teenager. And so, to his delight, he would read it because he was learning Latin at school. And he read the story of Samuel when Samuel's mother, Hannah, had Samuel. And he loved it. And he kept going and kept reading. So two things then. I want to talk about two things that would later lead him away from the study of law and toward the study of theology. This is a big turning point in his life. These two things that happened. Number one, a close friend of his died. And it really saddened him and it really bothered him. It also made him begin to think about what might become of him should he die suddenly as his friend died suddenly. The second thing that was very influential that really turned a point in his life is one evening in the year 1505. Okay, 1505. He's returning home to see his parents when he's suddenly overtaken by this violent storm so violent that lightning struck right by his feet as he was traveling and terrified, already thinking about death and what he might do should he suddenly die, terrified, he cries out, Saint Anne, help me, I will become a monk. He made a vow that day. Now to his father's great displeasure, because having an occupation in law during that time would have been a pretty good job to have. And all the sacrifices that his father made to put him through school, to his father's great displeasure, two weeks later, he keeps his vow and he joins the Augustinian monastery. And he takes the vows that are necessary to become a monk, it would have been a vow of chastity, it would have been a vow to obey the authorities there. Luther becomes an Augustinian monk. Luther tries to find peace. He wants peace with God. He can only see God as a judge. When he, later on in life, would read in Romans, like I read to you a moment ago, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed, he actually hated that idea 
that God was a righteous judge because he could only see God as a righteous judge. Actually, superstition abounded in that day, and people thought that you had to do all these superstitious acts to try to find peace with God. Um, As a monk, Luther tries to find peace with God. And he described his experience in the monastery this way. Listen, quote, I did not think about women, money, or possessions as a monk. Instead, my heart trembled and fidgeted fidgeted about whether God would bestow his grace on me. For I had strayed from faith and could not but imagine that I had angered God, whom in turn I had to appease by doing good works. You see, he didn't yet understand or know the wonderful truths of like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for example, which say, For by grace have you been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, God has designed the gospel in such a way that it can't be attained. Salvation cannot be attained by works. If it could be, what do we need Jesus for, right? If we could get it somehow by our own works, why would we need Jesus? God has designed the gospel that it comes to us through faith and by God's grace as a gift, not by works. Because if it was by works, we could boast about it. We could boast about how we attained it by works. Martin Luther had no peace. He wanted peace badly. Listen to what else he said. If I could believe that God was not angry, angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. All he saw in God was a righteous, angry judge. So life in the monastery for him, what was it like? Well, it was thought that by punishing the body, you could improve the soul. That's what they thought as monks. By punishing the body, you could improve the soul and maybe appease God as well, who's angry at you. So through a combination of work, uh, meager food, meager living, through fasting, uh, sleeping on a hard floor in his cell, attending masses day after day, reciting prayers, going to confession, he tried to find peace with God. I don't know exactly, but I think part of it might might have come from his study of law but he was very, very sensitive to his sin. He would stay in the confession sometimes for hours. Sometimes he would stay in there for so long that the other monks thought he was dodging work responsibilities. They thought, no, he's just trying to get out of work. He's just staying in there to get out of this. And look at us having to pick up his slack. But it wasn't that. He was so, I mean, I mean how much trouble can you get in as a monk in a monastery? I mean, coveting the other monk's small portion of rations. I mean, but he was so sensitive to his own sin and so troubled by that and so desiring of peace that he stayed in there for so long. He didn't yet know or understand Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Either, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, he didn't know that. He didn't understand that. He didn't have that. Peace with God only 
comes through Jesus Christ and what he did for us. Jesus is the one who did perfectly keep the law. Jesus is the one who did die as a sacrifice in place of sinners. But Martin Luther didn't know this. Years later, in the year 1510, Luther visits Rome. And you need to understand, everyone, there's so much I have to leave out. There's so much about his life I have to leave out, okay? I want to encourage you. You can go to some good places. There's so many good resources out there if you want to learn more about Martin Luther, even if you just want to learn it quickly. DesiringGod.org. That's John Piper's website. Lots of good articles and audio there. Also, R.C. Sproul's website, Ligonier.org. L-I-G-O-N-I-E-R. Org. You can go there. Tons of good resources. Steve Lawson also wrote a good book in the past, I want to say decade maybe, uh, about Martin Luther. But there's just so much I'm going to have to leave out. So in 1510, he visits Rome thinking he will find the church in its purest form since that was the home of the Vatican. The Vatican is where the Pope lives. This is the headquarters of the Roman Catholic Church. So he goes there with high hopes, thinking this. This will be the perfect example of holiness. That's what I'll find when I go there to the headquarters of the Roman Catholic Church. He found that Rome was instead one of the most corrupt places he'd ever visited. Ever. Priests were self-serving. There was greed, sexual impurity among the church leaders. He found that many of them didn't even believe the things that they were teaching to the people, mass after mass. He was appalled. But Luther was concerned for his own soul. So he made sure to visit one of the chapels uh, that contained this flight of white marble stairs. They're called the Scala Sancta, or Scala Sancta, which means holy stairs. That's what it means. He made sure that while he was in Rome, he visited that. The priest claimed that these were the very same stairs that Jesus ascended when he was sent from the presence of Pontius Pilate then to go to the cross at Calvary. It was taught that he ascended these very stairs when leaving Pilate's presence. And it was actually taught, they taught as well, that holy angels themselves took these stairs from Israel all the way to the Vatican and placed them there. They taught that. And the people believed it. And Martin Luther believed it. They also claimed that if an act of penance was done on each one of the stairs as you ascended them, that by the time you reached the top of the stairs, your sins would be forgiven. So guess where Martin Luther went? To the Holy Stairs, to the Scala Sancta. And he did, as tradition has it at least, he went up each stair on his knees, praying a prayer on each stair and kissing every single one of the steps as he went up. Because he hoped to find peace with God, that peace that he longed for once he reached the top. But of course, we all know that he didn't. And we all know why. Because peace with God doesn't come from any human 
act, except the one human act done by the one God-man, the only way that God has made to be saved. There's one mediator, we're told, in Scripture between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and he wasn't there. He wasn't there at those steps. He may have never even ascended those. They may have not even come from Israel at all. They probably didn't. Just as many of the relics that were enshrined in those many chapels in Rome and are still enshrined in the chapels in Rome are false relics. We also know that the Lord had a reason for all these things in Luther's life, and we know that the Lord was drawing him even closer during this time. Now, once he returned, he became a doctor of theology, and he was sent to Wittenberg, where he taught and he preached. And finally, a breakthrough came, because he was teaching through Galatians, he was teaching through Romans, he was teaching the Word. He knew Latin, and he was teaching it to people, even though he understood it up here, but he didn't yet have it here. But he was teaching nonetheless, and he was teaching, of course, traditions of the Catholic Church that he was told to teach, but it's after he becomes a doctor of theology, a doctor of theology, and he's made a teacher in Wittenberg that Luther was lecturing on the book of Romans, and he came across Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Let me read it again. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, what? The gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek, for in it, what? The gospel The righteousness of God is revealed. How? From faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is what Luther said at this point when he read that and understood it. Finally, and the Holy Spirit took it right to his heart. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Namely, it is the righteousness of God. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open Gates. He was finally saved. He finally had peace with God. We don't know if he kept his word and stood on his head as he said he would when he knew that God was not angry with him. I hope not because they had to wear robes. But we do know this, his discovery of true salvation, that it came to him by God's revelation, namely the Bible, the scriptures. That's why one of the great battle cries of the Reformation is the Latin phrase sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. That's how we come to know who God is, through scripture alone, not through church tradition, not through those leaders in the church who 
often contradicted each other back in that day. There was even a time when three different men were all calling themselves Pope and were jockeying for the throne, even though it's taught that, no, all the popes succeed one by one, starting with St. Peter. Yet there were three at one time, all jockeying for the throne. Scripture alone is how we know what God says. And we're saved through another one of the battle cries of the Reformation, sola fide, faith alone. Faith alone is what saves a man, not his works. And finally, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Luther had this. He understood it, and it changed everything. He was finally saved. He was finally at peace with God. And it came through God's external word. And God's external word began to form and shape everything anew in Martin Luther's life. Listen to what John Piper said. One of the greatest rediscoveries of the Reformation, especially of Martin Luther, was that the word of God comes to us in the form of a book, the Bible. Luther grasped this powerful fact. What fact? God preserves the experience of salvation and holiness from generation to generation by means of a book of revelation, not a bishop in Rome. Salvation comes through a book of revelation, not a bishop in Rome, unquote. John Piper. So let's talk now about the act that started the Protestant Reformation. Now that Martin Luther has peace with God, now let's talk about the act that started the Protestant Reformation. So someone comes onto the scene now. His name is Johann Tetzel. This is when, if we were in one of those theaters where people act plays out, the crowd would say, boo. Here's the villain. There's many villains But the Catholic Church began selling something called indulgences, primarily to fund the building of a new church. A phrase that's popular among the youth of our days, they talk about flexing. They get a cool car, they get cool clothes or something like that, and it's called a flex. They want to flex on people. Well, the the Pope wanted to flex by building this new church, St. Peter's Basilica, And this needed to be funded. He wanted to be bigger and better than all of them. And so, how did he fund it? Well, the sale of indulgences. Plus, any extra money could continue to fund the bishops and the cardinals' lavish living and the pope's lavish living. Indulgences, what are they? Indulgences were pieces of paper signed by the pope himself, which also contained the pope's own seal, Listen to this. This is what Diana Klein wrote in her book about this topic. Tetzel set up a table in the town square. Some of the monks who were with him set up a red flag that had the Pope's coat of arms on it. And then they seated themselves behind the table. Come near, shouted Tetzel. Come near. I will give you indulgences. Letters sealed by the Pope. Even the sins you do in the future shall be forgiven you. Repentance is not necessary. What's more, the letters will not only save the living, but also the dead. The very moment the money clings against the bottom of the chest, the soul escapes from purgatory and flies up to heaven. Bring your money, bring your money. A popular rhyme 
that he coined during that time was this. When the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Ah, the first jingle. And it was popular. And it worked. Now, children, in case you don't know what purgatory is, the Roman Catholic Church taught that purgatory was a place that you would go after you died to purge your sins by fire. That's why it was called purgatory, because it was believed that as you were there, suffering in flames, it's not hell, but it's hot. They taught that you would purge away all the sins, depending on how wicked you were. You may be there for a long time, and eventually purge away your sins, and maybe, maybe then be allowed to get into heaven. So, you could not only buy an indulgence for yourself, signed by the Pope himself that says your sins are forgiven. But you could even get a loved one out of purgatory. Why wouldn't you do that? How could you stand to have that coin in your pocket when you know your great-grandmother could be released from flames? How dare you? And so this worked. In response to this, Martin Luther, who's now saved, Martin Luther, who's now studying the scriptures, Martin Luther, who's now lecturing on the, script, on the scriptures anew with a fresh vigor day after day, he writes his 95 theses on October 1st, like I told you, 1517. October 1st, 1517, he nails them to the church door at Wittenberg. Now, these were 95 statements. That's what 95 theses basically means. These were 95 different statements, primarily to correct the wrong teaching concerning indulgences. Now, I need to tell you something, because a lot of us, there's kind of this lore around this day that we think, oh, he knew exactly. He said, that's enough. I'm standing against the Catholic Church. Come what may. And here, take this, Catholic Church. Come get me. Let's fight. That's really not what he was actually doing that day. These 95 theses were written in Latin. Latin was the language of the elite of his day. Only the priests and scholars, theologians, people like that, knew Latin. So he mainly did this as an academic debate. He really just said, hey, these are my concerns about the sales of indulgences. Let's learned people get together and discuss it. I mean, that was really the intent that he had. He didn't yet realized that this would be the spark that started the Protestant Reformation, which we'll talk more about here in just a moment. But these were 95 concerns, statements that he had. Here's a sample of some of them. Number 27. They preach only human doctrines who say that as soon as the money clings into the money chest, the soul flies out of purgatory. So he was saying... That's a human teaching. I mean, he, he wanted to discuss things academically, but you need to understand, he wasn't pulling any punches. I mean, 32. Those who believe that they can be certain of their salvation because they have indulgence letters will be eternally damned together with their teachers. <laughs> Scathing. First of all, he said they're false teachers. Then he says, you're going to go to hell along with the people who taught you that. Wow. Are the Germans still like that to this day? Are they still pretty rough? Yeah, okay. 
Number 36, any truly repentant Christian has a full right to full, to full remission of penalty and guilt even without indulgence letters. Let me read that one again. Any true repentant Christian has a right to full remission of penalty and guilt even without the indulgence letters. And we know it's through Jesus. Number 43, Christians are to be taught that he who gives to the poor or lends to the needy does a better deed than he who buys indulgences. He said, you do better giving your money to the poor than buying that trash. Mm. Wow. Number 54, injury has done the word of God when in the same sermon an equal or larger amount of time is devoted to indulgences than to the word of God. You see, Tetzel was not only setting up his sales booth in the town square and trying to do it all himself. No, he was going to all the priests and saying, you need to promote this during sermon time, okay? We're trying to raise a lot of money. So you've got to push these things hard during the sermon time. Sometimes there was no sermon time. It was just all indulgence commercial. But he was saying, if you give an equal amount of time to the word of God and the sale of indulgences, you're doing, injury. you're doing injury. And you're actually injuring the word of God. He says, injury is done the word of God when the same amount of time, equal or larger, is given to indulgences over and above the word of God. I would agree with that, and I would apply it to our day as well and say, injury is done the word of God when in the same sermon an equal or larger amount of time is devoted to fill in the blank, anything but the word of God. I also denounce modern day Tetzels who are trying to sell you any bill of goods that is not salvation through faith alone, by grace alone, and Jesus Christ alone, based on the scriptures alone. Let's be modern day reformers. Because I think we need a modern-day reformation. Amen? Number 92. And this is the last one I'll share with you. Away then with all those prophets who say to the people of Christ, peace, peace, and there is no peace. He's quoting Jeremiah, by the way, applying it to his day to people who were peddling salvation through coins. And he's saying, they're acting like the prophets of old in the day of Jeremiah who said to the people, peace, peace, when there is no peace. We just talked about this recently. Well, in response to Luther's 95 Theses, uh, an opponent of his wrote this. He, listen, and listen to this. This is crazy. He who does not accept the doctrine of the church of Rome and pontiff of Rome, pontiff of Rome, that's another name for the pope, he who does not accept the doctrine of the church of Rome and pontiff of Rome as an infallible rule of faith from which the holy scriptures too draw their strength and authority is a heretic. So you hear that he was saying that the church and the pope are the authority and the Bible is dependent upon them for its authority. Wow. Well, the fact that Luther's 95 Theses became so widely spread and so widely read and was even translated into the common language of the people, by the way, I mean, it was the first thing to go what we call viral. It was really kind of the first thing to go viral. 
It was so widely distributed and translated, which was a rare thing, into the common language of the people. Well, it caused the spark that eventually lit the flame, that eventually spread the truth all throughout Europe. It all started with Luther's 95 Theses because he was openly questioning the authority that the church was saying they had and openly questioning their rule and openly questioning their teachings and comparing it to Scripture. And that's the first time that that got so widely popularized and agreed upon. Other people tried to do it as well, but they were squashed out, like John Huss, 100 years prior to this. Huss was saying the same things. Luther was even accused of being what they call a Hussite. He didn't, he didn't agree with everything that Huss said, but people even accused him of being a Hussite. But see, they squashed out Huss quickly. But this wouldn't be squashed. This was God's timing. God sets in time and in motion things as he wills. And this was God's time. Well, it was because Luther began to affect the sales of indulgences. Um, the sales were cut in half once this started to spread. If you want to get someone's attention, touch their pocketbook, right? Well, this is when the Pope started coming down hard on Luther and actually commanded him to come to Rome and talk about this, stand trial. Defend your case, right? And all his friends were like, no, 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 no. Remember 100 years ago? That's what they did with Huss. They said, hey, you just come. We just want to talk to you. And then once Huss got there, they said, gotcha. And they burned him. They didn't let him speak. And they said, don't go, don't go. And so publicly, Martin Luther takes this, it would have been a really fancy piece of paper. It was called a papal Bull. Papal means from the Pope. A bull is like a, like a summons, like a, a fancy letter of summons. And he burns it publicly. <laughs> that was a big deal. You need to understand, it wasn't like it is in our day. Religion was deeply worked into the DNA of the culture. Deep. It's not like our day was kind of like, eh, whatever, I don't believe that. You didn't really have that choice. There weren't, or if there were, there were very, very few. There weren't atheists. Or there were just so very few. Well, his preaching didn't help the cause of the Catholic Church either. Uh, his preaching only elevated the word of God and pushed down the papacy. He showed from scripture how the modern church leaders were full of error. Luther also says this, quote, The word of God is the greatest, most necessary, most important thing in Christendom. Without the eternal word, we would not know one spirit from another. Some of the reformers in the day wrote a statement of faith and one of the Elements, one of the um, parts of their statement of faith was, and you can go read them still, the Pope 
is the Antichrist. So when he says the word helps us to spirit one, one spirit from another, he probably had that in mind. Well, then in the early 1520s, Luther was summoned by King, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, by Charles V, he's emperor of Germany, and the church leaders to something called the Diet of Worms. Now, if you read it, it says Diet of Worms. Like you think, oh, that's probably a good diet to lose weight on worms. I don't want to eat them. Well, a diet is like, um, like a meeting, and Worms was a place. He believed he was going to defend his writings. They gave him safe passage because he said, I'm not coming. Remember he burned the papal bull? Well, they said, we, we're going to give you safe passage. We promise. So he came. They had all his writings because he'd written so much on a table. And they said, will you recant of these writings? And he said, I thought I was coming here to debate these writings, not to recant of them. And they said, stop talking. Will you recant of these writings? Will you or will you not? And he said, well, they talk about so many different things. And to recant of one would be, they said, will you or will you not recant? And he was taken off guard. And he said, can I have 24 hours to think about it? And they said, yes. And that night he prayed earnestly for God to help him. And the next day he came back. And again, this is not debate time. This is shut up and answer our question time. They said, will you or will you not recant? That's all we want to know. And history records him saying this. Unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures... Or by evident reason, for I can believe neither Pope nor church council alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus, I cannot and I will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound God help me, amen. Scripture also, not scripture, but tradition also has him saying, here I stand, I can do no other. God help me, amen. So he says, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of Holy Scripture. Again, we need to understand, Martin Luther's role was so important because he elevated Scripture. That's what we need to see, that's what we need to take away from this. Out of darkness came the light of Scripture out of the Reformation. This is so key. You need to understand that we are who we are because of the book. We are people of the book. We have no other revelation from God except what he gave to us in this book. Well, so much more happened in Luther's life after this. So much more that we just can't cover. But one of the crowning achievements, and I'm almost done, was his translating the Bible into the common German language for the people of his day. You think, oh, that's cool. No, it's, it's very cool. Because <laughs> they didn't have it in their language. Martin Luther, when he was on the run, because after that council, after the Diet of Worms, <laughs> they basically said, his friends basically said, okay, you need to get out of here. It's about to go really bad for you. 
And it was about to go really bad for him because Charles V said, anyone who finds Luther can kill him on the spot, so let it be written, so let it be done. And one of his friends kidnaps him. A very rich friend, I forget his name, but he's some like, uh, like prince kind of guy. Takes him to his castle where he hides out for years and years and years. And it was while he was in that castle hiding that he translated the scriptures into German, a common language of the people. He gave them the best thing he ever could, the word of God that they could read for themselves. Well, one year before he died, he's quoted as saying this, let the man who would hear God speak read holy scripture. Nothing about the church, nothing about the pope, Let the man who would hear God speak read Holy Scripture. John Huss was right. A hundred years after him, a swan sang. And what was the song that that swan continued to sing again and again and again? The Scriptures. The Holy Scriptures. The Word of God. That was the one note. That song had one note. (laughs) And Luther sang it again and again and again. The word of God, the word of God, the word of God. And him, they had to endure, as John Huss said. And God used Luther's legacy, and it has endured and still affects us to this day because it was founded on the very thing that endures forever, the word of God. As Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 says, and I'll end with this. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. And let's stand on it together. Father, we thank you very much for the fact that you've caused your word to endure. Even in dark, dark times when it was eclipsed by wicked men, You caused others to be saved and to stand on truth and to be faithful. Lord, many, though, before Luther had to seal their resolve with their own blood. And we thank you, Lord, that you caused others to be protected and endure and fight and produce scripture in the language of the people so that they could be saved. And thank you that it continues to endure to this day. Help us in a time that needs to be reformed. Help us to be those modern day reformers that also stand on the truth alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray.